Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of When you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Then they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts in the field. On your belly you... You shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring, offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. You are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she is the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man And at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the the way to the tree of life. The word of the Lord. We're going to begin this morning, as we normally do, speaking more directly to the younger people among us. Today's word of the day is etiology. 
Does anybody know what etiology means? Anybody? Can I spell it? E-T-I-O-L-O-G-Y. Anybody studying for the SATs? Can I use it in a sentence? Um, It has to do with the word origin. Language of origin is, of course, Greek, in which you might see it spelled A-E-T-I-O-L-O-G-Y. It's often used in medical the etiology of this condition that you have is the fact that you've been eating terribly for tens of years. It means cause, reason, explanation. So etiology, that is what we're going to be talking about this morning. And do you all know who Rudyard Kipling is? Rudyard Kipling famous author. He wrote The Jungle Book. It's probably what he's most well-known for, but he also wrote a book of story, like bedtime stories that he would give to or uh, tell to his daughter, and they were called Just So Stories. And the reason that they're called Just So Stories is because his daughter would demand that he would tell the stories exactly the same way every time, just so, or it didn't count. Okay, so he gave these bedtime stories, and these bedtime stories were etiologies, They were explanations, origin stories of why particular animals had certain features or traits. For instance, he has stories like how the whale got his throat. So if you're familiar with whales, they have very small throats. The question is why. So he has a whole story about why the whale has such a small throat. Other stories were how the camel got his hump, how the rhinoceros got his skin, how the elephant got his trunk, and how the leopard got his spots. Uh, these are all fantastic stories. I encourage you to go back and listen to them. But in the interest of time, I'm only going to summarize for you my favorite story, which is how the camel got his hump. So this is, if you didn't know how camels or why camels have humps. In the time when the world was new, so very similar to Genesis, in the time when the world was new, the animals began to work for humans. But the camel refused to do any work and he lived alone in the howling desert. One day, the horse visited the camel while wearing a saddle, and he invited the camel to come out and trot like the rest of us. The camel refuses and only says, humph. The dog and the ox visit the camel and invite the camel to work with them. But each and every time, the camel says, humph. The man tells the dog, the ox, and the horse that they should give up on the camel. But the three animals are so annoyed that the camel lives all by himself, doesn't do any work all day, laughs at them, and just says, humph. One day, the animals are visited by the jinn, and the jinn, if you must know, is like a supernatural spirit in kind of Middle Eastern cultures. So these animals are visited by the jinn, and the animals complain to the jinn that they work all day while the camel is idle. The jinn agrees that this is not right, so it goes to visit the camel. When the jinn asks why the camel does no work, what does the camel say? Humph. And as jinns are ought to do, He works up a great magic. The camel says, humph, one more time, and what magically appears on its back? A hump. The jinn tells the camel that the hump is punishment for his laziness, and that the hump will allow the camel to work even longer to make up for the days that he has already missed. So that is why camels have humps. It's an etiology, an origin story. Moral of the story is, I think, don't be lazy, or else you get a hump. And you have to work even harder. So the question that we need to ask is, is Genesis 3 a similar kind of story? Is it an etiology? Is it the story of 
how the snake lost his legs. And there's certainly a way of reading Genesis 3 as a kind of origin story to explain why snakes do not have legs, but instead slither on the ground. But if you read it in that way, you're actually missing the whole entire point of the story. Because Genesis 3 is an etiology. It is an explanation for something. But it's not an explanation for why snakes don't have legs. Genesis 3 is the biblical chapter that most clearly explains why things are the way that they are. Genesis 3 is the explanation for why there are currently wars being fought in the Ukraine and the Middle East and why there were wars before that and why there will be wars even after those. It's the explanation for why we get mad when we get cut off on the road or when the barista gets our order wrong. It's the explanation for why we're so often bored or frustrated or discouraged at work. And it's the explanation for why marriage and parenting can sometimes be so draining and exhausting. All human conflict and frustration can be traced back to the events and consequences of Genesis chapter 3. That's what we're going to be looking at. But my goal this morning is not only to help you see that, but to see that even in Genesis 3, the seeds of our salvation are planted by God. And both the curses and the promises of Genesis 3 will set the trajectory for the rest of the biblical story ultimately culminating in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So please pray with me this morning as we look into Genesis 3. Dear Holy Father, we thank you for this wonderful Christmas Eve. What a joy it is to finally arrive at this day. That in the past weeks, we've been looking forward more and more to the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, And I pray that you continue to fill us up with deep anticipation in the same way that children look forward to Christmas morning. Father God, I pray that you would give us that same spirit of joy and enthusiasm as we await the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray that this morning you might help to see that from the very beginning you set in motion a plan to redeem us, to save us from our sins, and to restore us into perfect relationship with you. Help us to see that that plan centers upon your champion seed, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right, so two points this morning. First point, the cursed serpent. Second point, the champion seed. So first we're going to talk about the cursed serpent, and then the champion seed. The first thing that we should note about God's cursing of Satan is that in contrast to God's dealing with humanity, there's no calling out to Satan to ask him where he is, for Satan openly defies God without remorse. So if you remember the story, Genesis chapter 3, verse 9, after Adam and Eve sinned, they hide from God, and God, he initiates to restore a relationship with you by asking, Adam, where are you? I want to talk with you. But with Satan, notice there's none of that. There's no opportunity for Satan to show any sort of confession or repentance. There's no interrogation. There's no asking him, what have you done? If God's calling out to Adam, where are you in verse 3, is to be understood as God's free and undeserved initiative of his divine grace in response to human sin, then the lack of that same grace towards Satan is a sign that unlike Adam and Eve, Satan is beyond redemption. And this isn't the main point of the passage, but it's a really important point. No human being is ever beyond God's redemption. No matter what you've done, no matter how you sin against God, no matter how far you feel like you are away from him, no human is ever beyond 
beyond God's redemption. But Satan is. Satan has no opportunity for forgiveness, repentance, restoration. Satan is beyond God's redemption. Let us then look at the verses in which God curses Satan. Genesis 3.14. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock, above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. Now this is the verse that I mentioned a lot of people point to and say, oh, this is an explanation. An ancient etiology. The reason why snakes slither on the ground and they don't have legs. But if you read it that way, you're really missing the point of the passage because in the very next verse, verse 15, we recognize that God isn't speaking to snakes in general as a species, but he's talking to one specific serpent, Satan. In the same way, last week we saw that the snake was the most appropriate animal for Satan's deception. So ironically, the snake also happens to be a perfect picture of God's punishment and condemnation of Satan. Because the picture we get of God's curse against Satan in verse 14 is one of utter and abject humiliation. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. This is the equivalent of bowing the knee with one's face to the ground in submission and service. And this is precisely what Satan cannot stand. What Satan hates the most. Satan hates the joy that God has in the greater serving the lesser. Now, Satan, I think, probably hates the whole Bible. But in particular, I imagine that one of his least favorite Bible passages comes from Psalm chapter 8. This is Psalm chapter 8, verses 3 through 8, and it says this. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? Right, so the psalmist is looking at the creation, and he's wondering, How can the creator of all these things even care about someone as lowly as me? Verse 5, Yet you have made him, that is humanity, a little lower than the heavenly beings, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. See, the psalmist is familiar with Genesis chapter 1. The role that God has given humanity to be his vice regent under his creation to rule with his righteousness. So if these verses describe all the things that God has given to humanity, and if angels are a little higher and greater than humans, then imagine what glory and honor angels would deserve. What dominion will be given to angels? Because angels and the heavenly beings are even greater and higher than humans. And what does the Bible say about this? Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14. Are not angels ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? Angels are greater than humans. Yet God says they were created to serve those who are lesser than them. What Satan hates and cannot stand is that even though he was created as an angel, A heavenly being far superior to humans, awesome and majestic, reflecting the brilliance and glory of the divine creation. Yet God expects him to really serve those who are lesser than him. That's beneath him. To do so would be wrong and contemptible. And here is where we arrive at the crux of the matter and why Satan and Jesus are polar opposites and represent two completely different ways of life and being in the world. For we read in the New Testament Gospels, one of the most glorious sentences in all the world. 
the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as the ransom for many. You see, when the Bible says the Son of Man here, it's not simply referring to Christ's humanity, which we celebrate in the incarnation here during Christmas time. But the Son of Man is this biblical figure coming from the Old Testament who's a figure of apocalyptic, end-of-the-world judgment. And it comes from Daniel chapter 7. The way he's described is not that far different from what the Bible says of these heavenly beings. This is Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. Daniel sees a vision, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, that's the Lord Almighty, and he was presented before him. And to the Son of Man was given dominion and glory and a kingdom in order that all people's nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall never be destroyed. This is the Son of Man. So Jesus, as the Son of Man in the fulfillment of Psalm 8, is the very same person who perceives from the Ancient of Days the Lord Almighty dominion and glory and a kingdom. He is the very same person who comes to us in the Gospels and says that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You see, Satan and Jesus each represent two different kinds of kingdoms. The way that St. Augustine describes it is they represent two different kinds of cities, the city of man and the city of God. The city of man follows its Lord Satan and is guided by the love of self, but the city of God follows its Lord Jesus and is guided by love of him. And this inherent conflict between these two cities that coexist in the world will ultimately be resolved by what the Bible describes as our champion seed. The second point this morning is our champion seed, which comes from Genesis 3, verse 15. It reads, I will put enmity between you and the woman. This is God speaking to the serpent, Satan. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. Now, offspring is a very interesting word in that it's one of those words that can be both singular and plural. You can talk about my offspring, single child, but you can talk about my offspring, like, you know, Abraham's offspring, all the many thousands and multitudes that will come after him. So here it says in the beginning, between your offspring, read plural seed. The word for seed and offspring is the same in the original language. Between your offspring, plural, and her offspring, plural, that is this tension that we see between the city of God and the city of man, those who follow after the way of Satan and the way of Jesus. But then the author changes to the singular. When it says, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel, it's talking about offspring, singular. Genesis 3.15 has come to be known as the proto-evangelion. That is the first gospel. In all of the Bible, the gospel is first proclaimed in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. See, the gospel did not begin in the manger, but we were told the gospel began in the garden. For from the moment he sinned, God already began to lay the groundwork for man's redemption. There are two significant things to note about this first gospel. Number one, the promise of God indicates that God's ultimate victory over the serpent Satan and all that he represents only comes at the price of great agony and suffering, even death. We read, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this is a description of equal death blows. The champion seed, he will bruise, some translations say crush or destroy the head of a serpent. Because back then, didn't have guns. So how'd you kill a serpent? You stepped on its head, you crushed it. 
But how does a snake attack a human? By bruising or striking one's heel. By injecting its poison into the heel so that the poison will then go throughout the rest of the body. Make no mistake, these are equal deadly attacks from both the offspring of the woman as well as from the serpent. So within the very first promise of the gospel is built into expectation that salvation will come, but only at the great cost of the champion seed's very own life. And Jesus knows his Bible. That's why in Mark chapter 8, verse 31, when he foretells of his own death and resurrection, what does he say? He says, the Son of Man must suffer. He must be killed. He must be raised again. Why? Because he's familiar with the biblical story. He knows that God's ultimate champion, who will bring his ultimate victory, must die and sacrifice his own life. Second point about this first gospel God could have judged Satan right then and there. The Bible says that God has reserved an ultimate judgment for Satan in what he describes as the lake of fire from which there's no redemption, no return. But God doesn't do that. God doesn't at that moment send Satan to his ultimate judgment because in his infinite wisdom, God delays this judgment against Satan in order that humanity might receive his redemptive grace. Because God's salvation is designed so that Satan's ultimate judgment is man's ultimate redemption. Why? In order so that he can set right all those things which sin and Satan have distorted and disrupted. Which is what we see in verses 16 through 19 of Genesis 3. What Satan desires is nothing short of the complete reversal of God's very good creation. A return to, do you remember those verses? Chapter 1, Genesis 1, verse 2, tohu uvohu. That's what Satan desires. Tohu uvohu is a return to the wilderness, a life absent of the presence of God, without his peace, without his joy. And in one sense, Satan gets exactly what he's seeking. The curses in Genesis 3, they invert or at least frustrate the relationships that God has designed to foster human life and flourishing. So if you recall in Genesis 2, there are two very closely connected pairs of relationships in Genesis chapter 2, and they're reflected in like a wordplay, these puns in the Hebrew that you can kind of see in the English as well. But if you remember, there's Adam and the ground. So in Hebrew, Adam is Adam, and land or ground is Adamah, because Adam, Adam, comes from the ground, Adamah. There's this close, harmonious relationship that is intended between the two. And the second relationship is the man and the woman, or the husband and the wife, which is man is Ish, and woman or wife is Isha, because the woman comes from man. You can hear that in English, the woman coming from the man. There's these two very special, intimate relationships that God designs for the flourishing of life for people. Adam's relationship with the ground and Eve's relationship with her husband, Adam. And these are the very two relationships that the curses frustrate and affect. Genesis chapter 3, verse 16 through 19. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. 
because of Adam and Eve's sin, the intimate relation between husband and wife, the one of perfect harmony and intimacy, has now been distorted and disrupted. They'll have contrary desires against one another. Adam's relation to the ground is also cursed. Verse 17, to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which I commanded you shall not eat of it, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you and shall eat all the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you are taken for your dust and to dust you shall return. This last statement, for your dust and to dust you shall return. It's not a simple statement of the physical realities of our bodies, but rather it's a complete reversal of the creation order that God has designed. Because the ground wasn't created and intended by God to be a wellspring of life. The ground was intended by God to be the source of food for pleasure and enjoyment and sustenance for Adam and Eve. But now what has it become? It's become a coffin. It's become the receptacle of death. It's where people go after they die. Humans were never intended to physically die. The ground was meant to give life to them. Yet instead, now that ground has become the place of death. And this is what the Apostle Paul reflects upon in Romans chapter 8, verse 19 through 22. That the ground that God created for man to work and subdue has now subdued man. And the ground itself mourns. It says in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 to 22. The creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Why? For the creation was subjected to futility to death. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Do you see how intimately they're connected? Human life is connected to the glory and freedom of creation. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The curses of Genesis 3 distort and disrupt the perfect relationships that God designed in Genesis chapter 2, relation between man and wife, and how it affects not only that relationship but families, communities, as well as man's relationship to their work. And what we have to acknowledge this morning is that these consequences in Genesis three sixteen through 19 are actually common to all people. They're emblematic of the broken and fallen world in which we live, Christians are not exempt from the thorns and thistles of this world. For those of you who have borne the burden of caring and birthing children, do you think any of you had it any easier than anybody else? Are Christian women not susceptible to things like barrenness or morning sickness or miscarriages or stillbirths or painful labors? Do Christian wives always follow the wisdom of their husbands? Do Christian husbands always seek the good of their wives above their own? Are Christian marriages automatically easier and take less work and effort than any other kinds of marriages? No, in fact, we must openly admit that Christians all too often experience the brokenness and pain of this world, the consequences of Adam and Eve's sin and that of our own. And don't you just want to ask, why? Like, what are you doing, God? By introducing these consequences and these curses, aren't you letting Satan win? 
Isn't that exactly what he wants? For humans to suffer? To experience death? A lack of harmony in all the relationships that you've created? How does this make any sense? But if you read closely in the story, that despite these curses, there's glimmers of hope all throughout the story. Little clues that God's plan and purposes for humanity is not over. That their rebellion against God is not the end of the story and that his divine grace will have the final word. As I've already mentioned in Genesis 3-9, when God goes out calling for Adam, it's a sign of his desire for restoration of relationship. Also, we must note that the curses of Genesis 3-16-19 come in the context after the promise of the first gospel. Right? God promises the ultimate victory through his champion seed before the curses of Genesis 3, 16 through 19. And not only that, but let us look more closely at the verses that immediately follow those curses of 16 through 19. This is Genesis chapter 3, verses 20 through 24. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. These two verses lay the groundwork for the biblical story of redemption and show that in crushing the serpent, the champion seed will restore the very relationships that have been poisoned by sin and the serpent. Adam's renaming of Eve signifies that even though the seeds of conflict have been planted deep within their hearts, that not all, lo- not all hope is lost. So you remember in Genesis chapter 2, Adam names his wife woman, for she came out of man. That's when they have a perfect relationship. Naked, unashamed. Sin comes, they realize they're naked, they are ashamed, and they try to cover themselves. And even after that, Adam renames his wife, this time Eve, because she's the mother of all living. Naming implies a relationship and renewed intimacy. Not the perfect state of naked and unashamed, but at least the possibility of working toward that goal. A hope of life, that not everything will be defined by death, in this world. And perhaps even more importantly than Adam's naming of Eve or renaming of her, the Lord God makes for Adam and Eve garments of skin and clothes them. Not out of fig leaves, but out of animal skin, something far more durable and permanent, teaching them, once again, the great lesson of the Bible that salvation belongs to the Lord. You see, the fig leaves represent Adam and Eve's own vain attempts at covering themselves, that overcoming the alienation that they feel between one another, and before God. But Adam and Eve are encouraged not to be satisfied with their own attempts, but rather understand that true salvation must come from the Lord. So the Lord makes for them, clothes them with animal skins. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat and live forever, therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden and their removal signifies humanity's passage from this original state of blessing which we've talked about. The garden represents the perfect presence of God unmediated before people. And so their expulsion from the garden represents their passage from this original state of blessing into one in which they would experience life under all these common curses of Genesis 3, 16 through 19. And at the same time, God places, says a cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. 
implying that any future return to the Garden of Eden, any future return to God's dwelling place and the tree of life must involve a passage to the flaming sword of God's judgment. And that's what Christ has done for us. The champion seed promise of Genesis 3.15 that I mentioned is a giant arrow pointing to the cross of Jesus Christ. You see, the biblical story after Genesis 3 will trace this promise of a champion seed through all of its twists and turns. False starts and disappointments and unfulfilled hopes. And like every great story, perhaps at the darkest of moments when all hope seems to be gone, Because when you get to the beginning of the New Testament, God has not spoken to his people for four or five hundred years. They're still under foreign oppression of the Roman government. There's been so many false messiahs who have come and gone. And the question that people ask is, where is God? Where's hope? Does God have any plan left for his people? When is the champion seed coming? When all hope seems to be gone, that's precisely when the light comes. Because this seed is born in Bethlehem. Not in a king's palace, but in a humble manger. Foreshadowing the kind of life that he will live and the kind of death that he will die. This seed will live a perfect and obedient life before God, passing the test of covenant faithfulness that Adam and Eve had failed. And this seed will ultimately offer up his own life because in his own words from John chapter 12, verse 24, he says this, Unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies... It bears much fruit. Do you see the great lengths that God has gone in order to bring us back to him? Back to the original promise of his unmediated, everywhere and always presence. See, the champion seed leaves the comforts of heaven to take upon human flesh. Born of a woman and goes on a rescue mission into the wilderness to bring us back to the garden presence of God. That's why he's called Emmanuel. Because Emmanuel means God with us. Meaning if you want to be in the full presence of God, then there's no physical place to return to. You know, a lot of people these days ask, well, where was the Garden of Eden? They say maybe it was somewhere like, you know, between the Middle East and Africa. That's where like humans arose out of. All that is misguided. Because the full presence of God now is not a place, not a physical location of the Garden of Eden that we're somehow trying to get back to. The Bible reveals that the presence of God that's available to you this morning is not a place, but it's a person. It's God's very own son, his champion seed, the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He is the promised Messiah of the Old Testament, the true Davidic king, the son of man, the suffering servant who has bruised, crushed the head of God's great enemy, Satan, but only at the great cost of the bruising of his own heel. You see, Jesus pays the price of his very own life which is the ultimate example of the greater serving the lesser. By God's grand design, it's the, through the humiliation of his sacrificial death on the cross that Jesus earns the right to receive glory and honor and praise. Something Satan would never do. Satan would never serve the lesser. He would never give of himself for anything. Satan wants to distort and disrupt and destroy all the good things that God has created. But Jesus, Jesus, he has passed through the flaming sword of judgment that our parents, Adam and Eve, and all who come after them, including us, deserve. 
He has done it. He has done it all for us. And why? In order that you might acknowledge your inability to save yourself. In order that you might trust and rest in him. That you might be restored into proper relationship with God and man. And that the effects of the fall would be reversed and redeemed. So that you might live in the peace and presence of God, your heavenly father, with his people now and forever. Amen. Isaiah chapter 40 verse 8 says this, The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let us pray. Dear Holy Father, so often when we read your word, we have this deep sense that it is too good to be true. Yet I pray that you would give us a desire that these things would be true and a faith to know in our hearts without a doubt that they are true. To know that you created the entire world and that you created us with a purpose to glorify you, to be in perfect relationship and fellowship with you and with with one another. Help us to see how those things have been distorted by our sin, by Satan. But most of all, help us to see how you have made a way through your champion seed, Jesus Christ, who spent his entire life giving, serving, loving, empty of himself, all the way to the cross. Father God, especially during this Christmas time, we pray that we would be humbled by the humility of Christ and that we would receive the gift of his grace and love with great joy and gladness. I pray, Lord, that this would indeed be a Merry Christmas as we reflect upon the goodness of your love and the greatness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.